Well, good morning, Desert Springs. It is good to be here with you. Uh, when Ryan called me yesterday morning, am I on? You hear me? Yeah. Uh, when Ryan called me yesterday morning, he was like, hey, um, so, uh, <laughs> and he asked me to come and preach. I said, I would love to preach if you will let me just preach what I'm going to preach at Christ Church tomorrow night. He's like, what are you preaching at Christ Church? And I said, well, we just, we're just about to start First John. Uh, and he was like, that sounds great. So here we are. Uh, we just finished up the book of Proverbs at Christ Church, so it was great to hear of this uh, Saturday seminar that many of you women were a part of there. Uh, again, man, if you were not there, I can't encourage you. I don't even know what Chase said, but I'm sure it was great, because Proverbs is great, uh, and we should all know it better. But it is good to be here with you all. Uh, if you had told me n- near two years ago, Uh, that I would have to be filling in because of a COVID scare. Uh, I think two years ago, I would have just crawled into a fetal position and started crying. But here we are, pressing on in the grace of our Lord Jesus, uh, trusting him. We were praying, several of us this morning, that uh, you guys were all expecting Matthew, but we're getting 1 John, and it is good. Uh, God's word is good for us, and it is bread for us today. So it's good to be here with you uh, in a New Testament epistle. An epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. Letter that was uh, letters that are written by specific people for specific audiences for specific reasons. Uh, the best known epistles in the Bible to us most likely are Paul's epistles, his letters. But the Apostle John has three epistles of his own: First, Second, and Third John. I think there's a reason why we tend to like Paul's epistles more than John's. Uh, It might take a little bit of work, but I think we can, by doing some work, kind of trace the argument of Paul's letters, of Paul's epistles. Um, He often says, kind of like, if this is true, then that's true. And if this, this, this is true, then that's true. What once was this is now this. John isn't quite so linear as he is making arguments. My old friend Trent Hunter, if you remember him, uh, said that 1 John is almost like a string of Christmas lights that are all tied up and knotted up together. Uh, You can see these lights individually, but sometimes they loop over themselves and they repeat themselves in 1 John. This first chapter of 1 John is jam-packed, and it might feel like it's a little overly ambitious for me to try to take on the whole chapter. Uh, But this chapter kind of acts like a table of contents for the rest of the book. Now, it's going to introduce several lights that get repeated and knotted up uh, over and over throughout the book. Uh, You all will not have the benefit that my church will have in swinging back around to these repeated lights. Uh, Maybe this will, as you study Matthew on your own, this can be a supplementary book, though, for you to keep studying. Just that this book... You can't, for the rest of your life, mind the depths of it. Uh, so I encourage you, maybe use this first sermon this Sunday to kind of help you through the rest of this book. So if we're just going to scratch the surface on some of these themes, uh, they will just get repeated to dig and plow through throughout the rest of the book. But first, let's, let's meet this apostle John. John, the son of Zebedee, he was the brother of James, one of the 12 apostles. In fact, in his gospel, he gives himself the title of the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the three at Jesus' transfiguration. He was at the Garden of Gethsemane. He was at the foot of the cross when all of the others had bailed. John, Jesus entrusted John to care for his own mother Mary. He is very much a part of Jesus' inner circle. He's the same guy, uh, 
who wrote the book of John, the gospel according to John. And in fact, we'll see many of the same themes in John's gospel get repeated here in 1 John. Themes like darkness and light. Themes like being born of God or being born again. The love of God, remaining or abiding in God's love. And we know that John later pastored in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and many other Asian cities. Uh, the ones that these churches that he writes to in his other well-known book, the book of Revelation. But we're not actually quite sure whom he writes to here in 1 John. There's some confusion about, uh, there's lots of debate over whether or not this actually is John who wrote this because he doesn't identify himself like Paul often does when he begins his letters. John just gets right into it. So let's get right into it. John is going to set up this book with a major theme that we are created for fellowship with God. So we're going to consider our text tonight under three headings. First is just that, fellowship with God. And then we're going to ask two questions that John seemingly asks. What prevents it? What prevents fellowship with God? And then what preserves it? So, fellowship with God. John just jumps right in. He's got no time to waste. In verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He does not have time for introductions. He's got something to say. Now, many of you might know that The word gospel itself means literally good news. The gospel, the good news, the announcement. This makes the gospel different than any other world religion, which are just advice for how to live somewhat of a flourishing spiritual life. John is saying here, right off the bat, something happened. I've got to tell you about what happened and how what happened will change and affect everything in your life. And what is this? What happened? What is the announcement? What is the proclamation that he has to get to? Well, the thing that John can't keep quiet about is the incarnation. That doctrine that says God became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the God-man. And each of those words must stay together. The God-man. In these first five verses, John seemingly moves right away to confront what is likely two heresies, two teachings or beliefs, which, if accepted, will take you just straight away from Christianity. Two heresies that seemingly are being taught to his audience, beliefs that will lead you to death. These two heresies are that Jesus was not fully God, or that Jesus, simultaneously, ongoingly, some others were teaching that Jesus was not fully man. So John needs to straight away Say, he is both. He is the God-man. He is fully God. That is, Jesus is pre-existing and eternal. Right from the beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning. This calls to mind the way that John opened his own gospel account. In the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In Proverbs 8, you can see uh, Solomon really digging down deeply into a personified character of the wisdom of God. And throughout church history, many have been quick to see and think about Jesus as the very revealed wisdom of God. 
the personified wisdom of God in Proverbs 8 that is both distinct from God but is also God, that emanates from him, that proceeds from him in the same way that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord is distinct from God, but itself is divine. It emanates from God. The same way the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Proverbs 8 does not describe a time in which wisdom was created, as if there was ever a time that God was not wise. And just to reiterate here, the same thing, that the word of God, that which was from the beginning. Jesus was not created by God like everything else was in creation. He has always been. And as we'll later consider, Jesus must be God because a mere created being cannot lift us out of creation, out of nature, out of sin. We need the supernatural, the above or outside of nature, the creator to come to the creatures to save and redeem. Incidentally, this is in direct argument to present-day heresies as well. One of the many false teachings of both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses The most damnable belief of them all is that Jesus is not the pre-existing and eternal son of God, but is a created being, a very elevated created being. Mormons believe that he is a son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is a preeminent divine angel. But he must be God. And this is what John is confronting right away, that Jesus is from the beginning. He is divine. But a second heresy that John confronts right away is that Jesus was also fully man. This eternal God became a real and actual human being. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In chapter 2, we're going to see John talk about various antichrists or false teachers. And apparently, one of their teachings was that Jesus only appeared to be human. So if you wanted to, you couldn't really touch him. So you know that old uh, footprints on the beach story? Well, if these false teachers were getting their way, that couldn't have happened because Jesus didn't really have a body to leave footprints on the beach from. Which, by the way, one of my favorite jokes of recent memory is that the next time you go into a job interview and the hiring manager asks you to explain this gap in your resume, you can just explain, yes, it was then that Jesus was carrying me. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, this false teaching that was swirling around likely because these teachers of the day were believing a common Greek understanding of the world, a perspective that said that all physical things, all things that are in this physical world that you can grab and touch, uh, these are inherently corrupted and evil. That's the kind of existence that we should hope to transcend out of into the incorruptible spiritual world. Therefore, God could not have taken on a corruptible body because that would contradict his very nature. The divine becoming physical? No. But John is adamant this is not the case. He says we actually heard him. We actually saw him. We touched him. 1 John 4, 2, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 2 John 1, 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John 1, 14, we beheld his glory, probably the transfiguration of the bodily becoming glorified. We saw it. And not only when he was teaching and healing, but after his resurrection, the word of life, we touched him. I know it sounds crazy. Even we thought he was a spirit. But he said, 
Behold, my hands and feet touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So we did. We actually touched him. We felt his holes in his hands and his feet. John is claiming to be an eyewitness to all of this, which is one of the things that is most important to our faith, the credibility of the gospel accounts as eyewitness accounts. Many non-Christian scholars, uh, many of you, high school kids or college students that you might encounter in an intro to philosophy or an intro to religion class at UNM or something are going to argue that the gospels were probably some uh, accounts that were written down, codified, uh, tall tales, probably 100 or 200 or 300 years after this person, Jesus. If they're right, then our faith is done. But John is saying here that he was there. He saw him. He heard him. He touched him. So you better listen to what he has to say about him. And here's why all this matters. That God became man, that we might have fellowship with God. In the same way that we created creatures need the supernatural to rescue us, us out of the natural, out of nature, we simultaneously need a representative, a new Adam to act on our behalf. Or as Augustine said, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Whoa. Without ceasing to be what he was, fully God, he became what he was not, now fully man. Why? Well, First John 1, 3. That which we saw and heard was so that we might have fellowship with God. John may be thinking, oh, look, I, I know most of you guys there in Asia Minor and in Turkey, you're likely Greek or Asian. Uh, you aren't Jewish, so you might not quite understand what a big deal this is. Because you see, people have never really had fellowship with God. Moses, one of our great fathers, was told to remove his sandals before he was on holy ground. When Moses was getting the law from God, no one was allowed to even touch the mountain that Moses was up on meeting with God. One time when the Ark of the Covenant was being transported and the Ark was beginning to stumble, a guy reached out with good intentions to try to stop this Ark and he was struck down dead because of the presence of God. All that sound might sound harsh, but it's not. I'll tell you why in just a minute. But for now, though, let me tell you that the reason that Jesus came is so that we might know God intimately. The Lord Jesus didn't come to just teach us how to improve our relationships. The Lord Jesus did not come merely to save us from hell. The Lord Jesus did not come merely just to forgive our sins that we might be justified. He came so that he might invite us into the very life of the triune God. Y'all remember in my gospel, John might be thinking when I told you that Jesus said to Nicodemus how people must be born again, how, how they must receive a new birth, a birth from above, and at the Passover meal, after Jesus washed our feet, how he told us to abide in him, and he will abide in us. The very life of God coming into believers, like life goes through the vines and branches and into leaves and, fr and fruit. That's what I'm talking about. And so he says, into verse 3, that I and everyone who is believing is experiencing this kind of fellowship, this kind of communion with God. 
We are daily experiencing fellowship with God. We can now pray to God like we never could. We are free to talk to him as a good father. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and have a priest sacrifice for us. We don't have to have a priest pray for us. We have actual fellowship, continued and ongoing fellowship, communion with God wherever we are. So here's why I'm writing this letter to you, chapter 1, verse 3, that you might have fellowship with us. That is, that you might share in this fellowship that we already are experiencing with the triune God. If you have fellowship with us, then you come into this same kind of fellowship with God. You're part of the family. And then, verse 4, he says, We are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. He's saying, it would just give us tremendous joy if you would believe in the Lord Jesus like we do. If you would experience the kind of joy that we are experiencing, this would just be joy upon joy. Just believe, just welcome, just trust in the completed work of Jesus and you will just give us so much joy. Now, quick observations. Why is John writing this letter? He'll continue to give more reasons as we go along, but the initial reasons he gives are twofold that they will have fellowship with John and therefore have fellowship with God, and then that John's joy will be complete. He longs for them to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. So two applications. If you continue to read and study this book on your own, two quick applications is that you might have a deep and sure fellowship with God. John is going to rail against, over and over and over against, rail against a false assurance that just because you say you're a Christian, just because that's the box that you might check on a survey about your religious beliefs, that doesn't mean that you are actually a Christian. But he is going to go over the top to assure, to affirm those who are trusting in Christ of their deep assurance with God, of their fellowship with God. And so, if you continue to read this on your own, if you don't truly and authentically have fellowship with God, I think that might be exposed as you continue to study. But John is going to say, the answer must then not be to try harder, is just to press in more deeply to the love of God for you in Jesus. That you might have a deep and sure fellowship with God. But a second thing is that you might have a deep compassion for those who do not believe. If this is true, then our, then we should have a deep joy like John, that others might come to the same kind of joy, the same kind of faith that we have come to experience. A deep longing, or as Paul might say, an anguish for those who do not believe. So keep pressing in, keep sharing with this 2 in 22 initiative that you all are pursuing as a church. What wonderful encouragement that I am hearing of this. Uh, just share the gospel. Those around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, do not have the joy that you have. Share it. And so if this is what this letter is for, fellowship with God, and actually that this is what your life is for, the meaning of life is fellowship with God, then for the rest of chapter one, John is going to tell us what prevents this fellowship with God. And then what preserves or keeps fellowship with God. So three things prevent it and three things preserve it. So now, secondly, what prevents our fellowship from God? 
Before getting to the first thing that prevents fellowship, John is going to give us a principle. And John says, here it is. In verse 5, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. So here is the message that we have heard from Jesus. He's saying, if you miss this, you will miss everything else. Now, what would you expect him to say? Fill in the blank. This is the message that we have heard from Jesus. Repent. Believe in Jesus as your Savior. Uh, This is the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, so trust in his blood. Or even, if he was going to tell us something about God, maybe he might tell us something like he will in chapter 4, that God is love. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is love. Or God is a good father, so trust him. Now, John is going to eventually say all of those things. But where does he start? He says, This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I think that's surprising to us. But this is where he must start. Before we get to fellowship with God, before we get to thinking about communion with God, the first principle that John gives us and that we must start with is that over and over and over again, the Bible teaches us that for us to first properly understand ourselves, we must first understand the greatness, the power, the holiness of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, so I must always be careful not to start with myself. It is, very, it is very difficult not to do so. Our whole approach to the gospel and to Christianity naturally tends to be that from a self-centered and selfish standpoint. We argue like this, he says. Here I am in this world with its troubles, and I am ill at ease. I am looking for something I have not got. I am aware of my needs and my desires. I am aware of a lack of happiness. And the tendency for most of us is to treat this subject of religion, to approach God and the Christian truth and everything else in terms of my desires and my demands. Is that right? What has he to say to me and to give to me? What can I get out of this Christian faith and religion? Is there something that is going to ease my problems and help me in this dark and difficult world? Is that true? But that, according to this verse, and indeed according to the whole of the Bible, is the root and source of error, is the initial fallacy. It is indeed almost blasphemy against God. The answer of the gospel can always, in effect, be put this way. Forget yourself and contemplate God. This, then, is the message that we have heard from him, from Jesus. Not that your needs and mine can suddenly be met by the gospel, but rather that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Immediately, we must start with God and not with ourselves. So John starts here. God is light, and in him is no darkness. He is perfect, holy, and righteous, the source of all that is good and warm and true. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Everything that you experience that is good and right in your life and in this universe comes from a good and right God. There is nothing good that is not emanated from the character and person of God. So having established that, John is going to now confront these three lies that prevent fellowship with this infinitely holy and magnificent God. Apparently these same false teachers that were teaching that Jesus was not fully God or fully human, we're also teaching these three lies. And the first lie was this, that our sin does not break fellowship with God. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. There is a reason 
that people in the Old Testament were killed immediately when they come into contact with God's presence or not under his terms. Darkness and light cannot coexist. Think about it. If you are in a pitch black cave, what happens when you turn on a flashlight? Do the light and the dark struggle against one another? Do little pockets of dark stay floating around, like combating against the particles of light? No, the light consumes the dark. It swallows it up. It destroys the dark. The holiness of God will not allow for the presence of sin or darkness. Dark cannot be in fellowship with light. So walking in darkness, Lloyd-Jones says, represents everything that is opposed to God, everything that is opposed to his holiness and perfection, everything that is opposed to, the desires, to his desires for the world and for man. John is saying that by denying that sin is a big deal, we miss who God is. We misunderstand the nature of his character. We misunderstand who we are entirely, walking in darkness or we might say, living in continuous or unrepentant sin, walking in darkness disrupts your fellowship with God. Now, for the rest of the book, you might, it might do some good to try to think and compare the difference between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. Union versus communion. When I got married on November 8th, or no, <laughs> What's my anniversary? November 18th, 2006. <laughs> November 18th, 2006, Marcy and I got married. We entered into a relationship of union. Of course, divorce could break that union, but that, that ain't happening. This marriage is united. And yet, there are periods in our marriage where we experience deeper communion, deeper friendship, deeper relationship with one another. This is what this whole book of 1 John is about. That union is solidified through the work of God in Christ on the cross, sealed by the Spirit. And yet I think we all know that there are times in our lives where we have deepening or more shallow, rich or poor communion with God. When we walk in the darkness, we are disrupting preventing deep and rich fellowship with God. And so, I wish we could spend a whole hour here on this, but keep reading. Keep reading uh, the first two verses of chapter two. Man, such deep and rich stuff to solidify your union in Christ. But the first lie that we must not believe is that our sin does not disrupt our fellowship with God. Our sin is not a big deal. Walking in darkness is not a big deal. But the second lie is this, that we don't have a sinful nature. Apparently some were teaching, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are some saying that we, there's no such thing as sin. It's not a big deal. There's no such thing as a sinful nature. This is similar to the first lie, but John here isn't talking about specific acts of sin, but about our very nature. Apparently, these teachers were, at best, teaching, sure, we might have some bad habits that we might need to clean up, but there's nothing seriously broken or dead about you that needs life. How incredibly silly, though, would it be for you if you had an ongoing 
over a week or certainly over a month, a throbbing pain in your left shoulder to just keep popping ibuprofen. Just keep treating the symptoms of the pain rather than going to the cause of it. In fact, the cause which is far more deadly than a throbbing shoulder but a coming and fatal heart attack. John is saying your nature, the constant influences that cause you to sin must change, not just cleaning up some bad habits. The question should not be, why did I do that? But the question must be, what led me to think that? What led me to be convinced that? What led me to worship that which I thought was good and then act on that? Not why did I do that? That's just shoulder pain. The only answer can be what Paul says in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That if you deny that you are at your core a rebel, someone who is glad to remain in the kingdom of darkness, then you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And so a third line. Now, confronting our sinful nature, now a third lie that John must confront here is that we actually don't need forgiveness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Why do we make God a liar if we say that we have not sinned? Because God says that we have, that we are sinners. It is all throughout the Bible. This is not just some, our frailties, our weakness, our brokenness is not just some psychologized Um, understanding of our childhood or something as deeply broken as those might be, but that we are at our root, at our core, sinners, separated from God. In fact, John will say over and over and over again that the reason that Jesus has become the God-man, that the reason for the incarnation in the first place was to save us from our sins. This lie is also similar to the first And saying, no, I'm good. I actually don't need forgiveness. My sin is not that big of a deal. Do we do this? I think we do this. Maybe not, we wouldn't say this on a theology exam or something. But are there ways in your life that the Bible is quite clear that is sinful? But you nevertheless justify it in all kinds of ways. It wasn't my fault. Uh, Others do it as well. God must understand. Excuse after justification, after excuse after justification. Who cares in the end? God cares. In fact, he cares so much that he would come to fix these problems. And so, again, we should spend a whole Sunday on each of those three lies. But I think if you'll continue to read this short letter of 1 John, you'll have much, much more to dig deeply in. But if these three lies prevent or disrupt, or I think that's a good word, disrupt our fellowship with God, what actually preserves it? What are the things that might, in the same way that might disrupt my communion with my wife, what are the ways to deepen my communion? What are the ways to preserve or deepen our fellowship with God? These three lies that these three false teachers or these false teachers were teaching, and that we also tend to believe, 
are true, then John says that believing these lies are not only a big deal that we must pay attention to, but if you do believe these lies, your fellowship with God might actually be being disrupted, if not entirely prevented altogether. So rather than, the first lie, rather than denying that our sin breaks fellowship with God, what should we do? What should we do? Here's the first thing. Walk in the light. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Is John saying, if we become a Christian, now the way to deepen your fellowship with God is stop sinning? Walk in the light? That means stop sinning, everyone. No, remember, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's much more to talk about there in the coming chapters of First John. But he is saying that if we see God more clearly, holy, without sin, light, without dark, then our sin will actually be illumined. We'll see our sin more clearly. Remember, if walking in the darkness is being in complete opposition to the kingdom of light, well, walking in the light is the exact opposite of walking in the darkness. We are not perfect, but we are now people of a different realm. We've been brought from the darkness to the light. If we refuse to face our sin, that means that we refuse the light and we actually very much dislike the light. But by walking in the light, being freely open and honest, as we'll think about, freely open and honest about who God is and who I am, then there is peace there. There is forgiveness there. There is joy there. There is transformation there. Let's keep going. Second lie, rather than denying our sinful nature, now, Confess your sins, both to God and to one another. Remember in verse 7, when we walk in the light, that is, when we are honest about sin, then we actually have fellowship with one another. This means specifically, specific confession. We don't just say, well, I'm just a sinner. God, God made me this way, or this is just too big of a deal. This is too difficult in my life. This is just the way I am. No. No, in God, there is no darkness. He did not make you this way. There is light in him. God's grace is bigger. Yes, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must confess that first. It's been said, if we hide our sins, God eventually drags them into the open. But if we bring our sins into the light, God immediately covers them up. So here's one thing of many that I hope might become more and more true of you as a church. That you would become, even more than you are right now, a people of the light. A people who have so encountered the grace of God that you become a people who are so quick to share sin. Quick to share weakness. Turning the spotlight from sin, now onto the glory of God in your life. You are people of a different realm. We do not wait to clean ourselves up, to change ourselves. No, by sharing and by being a people of the light, then all of that happens. The transformation happens. There really isn't like a timeline of progress or sanctification in 1 John like we might expect to see in some of Paul's letters. Remember, it's all just Christmas lights knotted up together. 
all of this is just living in the light together. Progress, sanctification, all of this happens just by living open, openly and honestly with one another and before God, living in the light. Together, loving together because of the love and the light of God who has come to live for us and to save us. So confess your sins to him and to one another. Again, do not wait to change yourself, but come just as you are, then he'll change you. And then lastly, if the third lie is denying our need for forgiveness, then the third thing that we must do in contrast to that is we must trust in the blood of Jesus. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, you could spend the next several months just thinking about the first two verses of chapter 2. In fact, just do that. Just memorize those two verses and swim deeply. But you as a church, I know you do, sing often, what can wash away my sin? Church, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We trust in the blood of Christ when we first believe, when we repent of sins, and we trust in the blood of Jesus for the rest of our lives and into eternity. As glorified saints, we will often and ongoingly for eternity remember the blood of Christ shed for us. It cleanses us, it forgives us, but it sanctifies us. It transforms us. It makes us more and more like Jesus. The blood of Christ shed for you on the cross because of your sin is the fountain that washes you and transforms you. It is what seeps into your life like very sap. The spirit binding you to the vine of Christ that you might be his branches, his life into you, fellowship with God. The blood of Christ does not make us sinless, but by trusting in it and by walking in the light, the blood of Christ does make us sinless. So fellowship with God is what Jesus' message was, what John's message will be, but before we can have fellowship with God, we must see him clearly. And then we see ourselves clearly. Then we see our great need for a great and sacrificing Savior. When the cross of Christ becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger reality in our life, growing taller, casting a deeper shadow onto every part of our life so that the blood of Christ, the Spirit of God, might deep, deep, deep work its way into every nook and cranny of our life. That is living in the light. And that is the life that you were created for a life of joy, a life of union with God, and communion with one another, walking in love. This book is good. Amen. Keep reading it. Keep reading it for the rest of your life. Keep reading Proverbs. Keep reading Matthew. Keep reading 1 John. Keep reading it all. This is our life. The word of God revealed to us. The word of God lived for us. The word of God died for us, and raised to new life for us. Let's dig deeply. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we are thankful for your word to us, that you have revealed yourself to us. You could have kept yourself hidden. You would have been good and right to. In your holiness and your light, you would have been just fine and justified to keep yourself hidden. But you, O triune God, have exploded into creation. You have created the world for your glory, that we might know and experience you, that we might know and experience your love. God, help us to walk in this love, walk in this light as your people, people who have been transferred out of a realm of darkness and death and into a new realm of light and life, the light and life of Christ that has been revealed to us from heaven, who has lived for us and died for us. Might we bind ourselves to him more closely? You have, uni- you have done the hard work of uniting us to him, but might we walk with him? Might we daily seek deeper and deeper communion? We pray that you would do this for your glory, for our deepening good and joy, for the sake of our unbelieving friends and the nations before us, that they might see a deep and abiding joy and want it, that our joy might be complete. We pray for all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.